Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Goodness, judging from how many folks are here today, it must have got out I was preaching. I, uh, I've instructed the ushers not to let anybody out, so nobody escapes, right? <laughs> I want you to open your Bibles. You better have a Bible. On your phone, on paper. Yeah, you got a Bible over there. I love that. Psalm chapter 2. A message today I just simply entitled, Jesus Wins. You can already tell it's going to be exciting, right? I saw a bumper sticker years ago. I mean, it had been back in the 80s, and I've just, I thought it was funny then. I think it's funny now. It said, life is a rat race, and the rats are winning. You ever feel that way? Sometimes it feels like the rats are ahead of us. I think it's safe to say that, that everyone here likes to be on the winning side of something. Now, when I was growing up, uh, I was just about as round as I was tall in middle school and in primary school, and I didn't get chosen for a lot because I was pretty slow uh, on my feet. What I'm just in case you, just in case some of you are wondering about that, <laughs> I better clarify. But I didn't get picked first a lot of times because if you're going to be in a sport and it's a race or it's something like that, if you're not fast, they're not going to choose you and. I'm not slow, I'm not fast, I'm kind of half, and I'll leave it at that. Some of you will get that later, half fast. Not slow, not fast, but half fast. <laughs> That's about as far as you can be, I'll stop right there. Take it, take it from a, a, a lifelong Dallas Cowboy fan, losing is never fun, even though you have ample opportunity to get used to it. Don't like losing. You don't like losing, right? Amen? No, I mean, none of us do. Now, Psalm chapter 2 is a prophetic psalm or a messianic psalm. It's a, song about, it's a psalm about Jesus. It is the first time in the Bible that you see a father-son relationship in the triune Godhead. The Trinity. It's here in Psalm. It's the first time that it's mentioned in the Bible. So it's kind of a unique psalm. But it's a psalm about the ultimate triumph of the anointed of the Lord. The Christ of the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Even my Bible as a, as a header above the, the, the title Psalm 2. It has this as its, its title. The Messiah's Triumph and Kingdom. And it's really hard to miss. You just read through it, and you can come up easily with that title. It's an exciting title. The purpose and plans of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, folks, is a cause that cannot and will not fail. Amen? Woodrow Wilson years ago said this, I would... I had rather temporarily fail with a cause that must ultimately succeed than to temporarily succeed with a cause that must ultimately fail. 
And I agree with that. I want to be on the winning side is what Woodrow Wilson is saying and what we're saying. Now, if you've got your Bible open to Psalm chapter 2, there are four voices that speak in this psalm. First of all, if you're taking notes, write what the sinful people say. What the sinful people say. First of all, notice they speak with violent rage. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The word rage, the definition is violent, uncontrollable anger. Why do the nations rage? Why, why is there so much war? Why is there so much hatred? Why are men's hearts and minds so inflamed? People today are becoming increasingly violent. Haven't you, don't you agree with that? They're filled with rage. They're, they're angry about everything. I went into McDonald's for breakfast here a number of weeks ago, and I guess I got in there just in time to hear some lady just ranting and raving because her order was wrong. It happens to everybody, just go to McDonald's. How many times, Teresa, have we come home and opened up the bag and go, oh man, we still haven't learned to check it before we leave. People are, <laughs> people are angry about everything. I mean, think about, think about, just for a moment, think about crime. The New York Times reported covering 37 major U.S. cities with data for the first three months of this year, and they said there has been an 18% increase in murders compared to the same period in 2020. Think about science. We, we've have the technological ability to absolutely destroy the world with atomic energy, don't we? Have for decades. We can destroy the world with, with nuclear energy or poisonous chemicals or even viruses. It's amazing what science has done and some of the horrors that are, you know, potential from that. And think about what's happening to the home just for a minute. The stable basis of society, the home, that, that we've known here in America is literally unraveling. And then you add to that terrorism that has reached our shores in the last 20 years. Uh, America is not what we used to know, right? Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. We are living there, right? I think the real pandemic today is the growing fearfulness from uncertainty about where humanity is headed. We live in a world of increasingly violent rage. We saw an example of this with all of the riots that occurred in the cities all across our nation in 2020. Just something triggered it and off it went. People were just turned, turned absolutely violent in their rage against who knows what. But not only is there violent rage, but notice, secondly, that there's vicious rebellion. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word means Christ. Think about this. The answer to the question in verse 1, 
Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The answer to that question in verse 1 is found in verse 2. It's because they have rebelliously rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, right? I'm convinced that the fear, the violence, the wars, the rising death tolls are because man in his pride and the rulers of this world have rejected the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You've seen this sign. Put that sign up there on the screen. Okay. It was in my notes, I thought. But you've seen it. No Jesus, K-N-O-W. No Jesus, no peace. What is the rest of it? No Jesus, no peace, right? There's, there's a lot of truth in that. When you think about it, when you exclude the Prince of Peace, you exclude the possibility of any peace. When Jesus came to this earth the first time, he came to a Roman world of government. He came to a Greek world of culture. And he came to a Jewish world of religion. And all three rejected him. And the same is true today. The world continues to say no to Jesus. And our government has absolutely no place for the Lord Jesus Christ today. We're told we can't praise him in our public assemblies lest we be accused somehow of uniting church and state. And even in a lot of churches, folks, and this is so sad, but there are a growing number of churches over the past several decades that, that if you stand up and say Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, you'll be called a bigot and you'll be called narrow-minded. And yet the Bible is clear. There is no salvation in any other except for Jesus. Now Jesus was narrow. He said, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. That's pretty narrow. I believe in a book, the Bible. I believe it is in the infallible Word of God. A number of years ago, a member of South Valley, I, I, they didn't say it to my face, but it would have been okay if they had. But they referred to me behind my back as, as a dinosaur <laughs> because I, I hold to certain doctrines that I refuse to give in on. I'm not going to compromise the truth of God's word. And that's okay. Perhaps I am. Thank you. I'm glad some of you folks agree with that. But if that makes me a dinosaur, you can call me Pastor Frankosaurus. I don't care. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just dinosaur enough to believe, to believe in the book, to believe in the blood, and to believe in the blessed hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I believe that's going to happen. Amen. So there's rage in verse 1 because there's rebellion in verse 2. But notice, thirdly, there's vain reasoning. Look at verse 2 again. The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and, his, and against his anointed. And I said, it's not merely that they ignore the Lord Jesus. They actually plot against him. The word counsel, they take counsel together. That word counsel is the exact same word found in chapter 1, Psalm 1, for the word meditate. And it, it means to, to, to think something thoroughly through, a well-thought-out plan. They begin to rationalize away the eternal truths of Scripture. They think about it, and they have to, to, to rationalize it and reason it away. 
Teresa and I just had a wonderful road trip. We went a number of great places. Uh, one of the places that we went was the Nevada State uh, Museum of Natural History. All fascinating stuff, but they can't have a museum without 250 billion years or so more. They're trying, to, they're trying to figure out how things can happen, and in order to make them happen, they have to have billions and billions of years to do what God created in six days. They're reasoning away because if they once admit there is a creator behind the creation, that there's a designer behind the design, the moment they admit that, then they have to deal with a supreme being, and they would rather not even though their, their, their logic makes no sense, not really, they have to have billions of years to even try to come close to trying to reason something out. This is what he's talking about, that they began to take counsel against the Lord, against his anointed. Let's reason it all away. These people put their minds together and they take counsel together against the Lord and against his, his, his anointed. Uh, Paul would say this in Romans 1.22, professing themselves to be wise they became fools. When the United Nations was founded in 1945 in order to appease the communists, any reference to God was completely left out of the United Nations Charter. They wanted to make sure God had no place in it, that way the communists are appeased. Why was the UN formed? It was basically to try to stabilize the world and all the countries, to hold each country accountable, to keep the peace. Did you know that since that period of time, we have had more wars than any period of time in the history of this planet? Big fail should be stamped across the UN. Now, I'm not a political guy, but they're not doing what they were designed to do because they can't because they've removed the Prince of Peace from the very foundation of what they needed to do, right? Our world is in the condition it's in because we are systematically removing God from everything we possibly can. I was blessed this past, just several months ago, I, I brought the baccalaureate message to the graduating class of 2021 at the high school. The lady that invited me to bring the message told me that Lamore High School is becoming a rarity because many high schools are no longer allowing that type of a religious service on their campus. I thank God for our leaders in, in the high school and the schools that they're still allowing that. Pray that they will keep that open. Every so often, uh, Pastor John does it, but he asks me periodically to pray for the city council. We go to the, the council chambers and they open up uh, their meeting by asking a, a, a local pastor to come in and pray, and I've had that privilege a number of times now. And I just thank God that some people in our community lead, as of our community leaders, that still value prayer. It still says, "In God we trust." In the council chamber, but folks, do you understand that's the exception and not the and not the rule? We're blessed to have that. Thank God we still have that here. But look at verse three. Here's what they want to do. They're talking about the Lord and His anointed. Let's break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want them to dictate how we can live, what we should do. Get rid of the commandments, get rid of the biblical principles. 
We can do things on our own. Is there any wonder the world is in such a mess? Is it any wonder some of your lives perhaps are in a mess because you have yet to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and do things His way? He's the one who created you. Why would you not do things His way? So what you have is violent rage, vicious rebellion, and vain reasoning, and that's what sinful people say. But let's look at what the sovereign God says, okay? Second point, what God says. The people have spoken, and they basically said in the first three verses, we don't want the Lord, we don't want His Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. We want to do away with every cord, every principle, everything that tries to tell us how we can live our life. We don't want it. Verse 4, God speaks... He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. The word derision means to mock or scoff at. Now God's not laughing because he thinks it's funny, is he? This isn't humor, this is irony. God is mocking puny man as they say, we want nothing to do with God. We can fix our problems we, without the need of his input or help. We don't need that religious stuff. You ever heard the saying, he who laughs last, laughs best, right? I mean, think, about, think for a moment about the Pharaoh in Egypt. All the Hebrews there, they're starting to grow in numbers. And Pharaoh becomes concerned that their, their population is going to exceed that of the Egyptians. And so he devises a diabolical scheme to kill the male babies. It's infanticide at its worst. And so he instructs the the, the chambermaids to come in when a baby is born, if it's male, take him out and throw him in the Nile River. That was his plan. So what God did was he put a little Hebrew baby through his providence in the Nile River, floated him up into the bulrushes, the tulies, what I call them, floated him right there. Who but the Pharaoh's daughter? What a coincidence. Not even close. The Pharaoh's daughter comes out and finds this little Hebrew baby, brings him in, adopts him. The Hebrew winds up, the, the, the Pharaoh winds up educating at his own expense the very one who's going to come in years later and destroy the nation economically and lead all of those slaves into freedom. And that was par it was paid for by Pharaoh. I think it's kind of a, a, a great thing that so many wonderful military families come into South Valley Community Church and, and a number of other Bible-believing churches in our, in our area, and they, they stay here, they get discipled, they learn, they serve, and then at the government's expense, they're flown around the world to serve Jesus. I like that. Amen? I think that's a great... <laughs> I think that's God going... <laughs> Maybe not like that. I'm more like a cackle when I laugh. But God's laughing about that. I, I, I don't know. There must have been some laughter in heaven. Um, you, you've probably heard, because this is an old story, but it, I actually fact-checked it, and it's true. Uh, the French philosopher and very ardent atheist hated Christianity. His name was Voltaire. In his voluminous writings against Christianity in the Bible, he predicted this in 1776, and I quote, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker, end quote. Within 50 years of, of his death, the very house in which he lived in Geneva, Switzerland, 
was used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva to store tracts and Bibles in his own house. It gets even better. The printing press that printed his books was just across the border in France, in Ferney, France. That printing press was used to print Bibles. It gets even better. There was some high-quality paper that was being stored for Voltaire's books. They used it to print Bibles. He who sits in the heavens shall hold them in derision. He will laugh. Puny man. You can't do that. So he holds them in derision, but he holds them in displeasure. Look at verse 5. Then he shall speak, that is, God shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Folks, listen to me. As much as God is a God of love, do you understand that God is equally a God of perfect, pure wrath? We don't talk about the wrath of God a lot, but it's here in the Bible. Now, this verse is sort of prophesying something. I told you it was a prophetic psalm. It's prophesying, I believe, the battle of Armageddon because that is called the great day of God's wrath in Revelation chapter 6, verse 17. There's coming a day. The world is on a collision course with judgment. And it is surely coming, folks. God is going to speak, and when he does, he is going to speak in his wrath, and he's going to speak in his displeasure. Now, I don't know when it's going to happen. One man writes this, Even now, the raging waters of God's wrath are furiously pounding against the dam of his mercy. Well put. But listen to me, folks. One of these days, the dam of God's mercy is going to give way to the raging waters of God's wrath. It's going to happen. And listen, all of the collective, violent, raging, vicious rebellion and vain reasoning won't hinder the ultimate triumph of our God. You would sooner quench a tidal wave with a sponge than to stop God's ultimate triumph over the puny attempts of man to do away with his plan. In short, Jesus wins. But look at God's determination. Look at verse 6. Highlight this word in your Bible. Circle it. Make note of it. Yet... Don't miss that word. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. In other words, yet. In, in spite of the nations and the peoples raging and rantings and rebellion, all of their vain reasoning and plotting and trying to do away with him, we're going to cast off all of his bonds from us. God says, you, you, you do that, and yet I am going to accomplish what I set out to do. That, that doesn't thwart, it doesn't detour what I'm doing. And someday, payday, right? I'm going to set my king upon my holy hill. So in spite of the rantings of atheists like Voltaire, who don't, who don't want creationism taught in schools, in spite of the scorn of modernists and liberals who try to remove the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, in spite of the abject ignorance of mankind, in spite of all the scheming and imaginations of Satan, in spite of all of that, there is a big yet. Amen? Yet. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I, and he says this, yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Now, wait a minute. 
He hasn't done that yet, yet he will. And God is the one who can speak of things that aren't as though they were. That's what he's doing here. What, what is Zion anyway? Zion is sort of a spiritual title in the scriptures given for the city of Jerusalem. He's going to set his anointed on the throne in Jerusalem. Has that happened yet? No. Is it going to happen? Yes. Folks, the very city where they crucified him, where they plucked out his beard, where they spat upon him, where they beat him, where they nailed him to a cross, God says, I'm going to crown him king of all the earth right there. Because he that sits in the heavens is yet. I don't care what you do. It ain't going to stop what I'm going to do. So in spite of all that they do, God speaks and he speaks in derision. He speaks in displeasure and he speaks with determination. Isaiah 46, 10 is a great verse that correlates with this thought. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do all of my pleasure. Isn't that great? Jesus will be crowned in Zion. God has his heart set on it. God will do it. And be sure of this, all of hell can't stop it, right? So the sinful people speak, the sovereign God speaks, but now the saving son has something to say. And this is the son quoting the father. And first, the son speaks of his divine position. I will declare the decree, verse 7, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So the anointed one, the son, is now speaking, basically saying, this is what the father said to me. That, that phrase, by the way, you've seen that, it's familiar to you, it's in the Gospels, it's also in the book of Hebrews. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, in this psalm, the son is equated with the anointed, with the Messiah, in the first few verses of this chapter. You will never settle the sin question until you've settled the son question, right? To refuse the son is to refuse the Lord. Jesus said this in John chapter 3, verse 35 and 36, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the son should not see life, but listen, the wrath of God abides on him. You're in one of two camps today. You're either abiding in Christ or you're abiding in the wrath of God. There's, there's only two camps. You're in one or the other. And he says here in the verses in John, to honor the Son is to honor the Father. To honor the Father is to honor the Son. To receive the Father is to receive the Son. To receive the Son is to receive the Father. What is that doing? What is that saying? It's equating the Son with deity, what the Father has. Jesus is, in fact, God. Don't let anybody tell you different. Jesus revealed himself as God incarnate, in the flesh. That's just Christianity 101. That's one of those, that's one of those 
doctrines that you have to go to the mat for. That's not an option. You have to believe that Jesus was, in fact, God incarnate. He says, I will declare a decree. A decree. The Lord has said to me, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. What is that speaking of? That speaks of the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior, begotten in the womb of Mary by the Spirit of God. That is also a non-negotiable for Christian faith, that Jesus was born of a virgin. We must maintain that doctrine. But secondly, he, he speaks of his divine position, but he speaks also of his divine purpose, okay? Look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the end of the earth for your possession. What is his purpose? Well, his purpose is, is to redeem a people unto himself from among those nations that he's mentioned in the earlier part of the chapter. All the, all the nations, the tribes, the tongues of this world, the anointed one is going to redeem from that, those who are raging, those who are rebelling, those who are vain in their attempts to do away with him, that's where he's going to save from people from. Uh, let's listen to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Great cross-reference. After these things, John said, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number, of all the nations and tribes, peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands. In verse 1, the nations are raging and rebelling against Him. But folks, listen to me. It is out of those very people that the Lord will redeem a people for Himself. Amen? You know why? Because He has no choice. Everybody falls into that camp at one point in their life or another, right? You weren't born saved. You had to be born what? Again. I mean, the only fishing hole for God to win people out of is the cesspool of the nations and the tribes and the tongues. <laughs> Isaiah put it well, we're all like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. That describes you, by the way, and me. Psalm 14.3, this is very comprehensive. They, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There's none who does good. No, not one. Paul gets very specific about that corruption. I mean, the psalmist kind of blanketed and said, there's none that does good. Paul actually gives us a list. Look at, look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And he doesn't have an exhaustive list. He could go on and, and, and say a thousand other things. He's saying the unrighteous, those who are unredeemed, will not inherit the kingdom of God. No matter what they say, but he says this, look in verse 11, and this is such great news, but such were some of you. But you're washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that great news? Because we were all in the list. 
We may not have found ourselves with one of those things Paul listed, but he's not trying to be exhaustive. He didn't have enough ink. And so he just comes up with this list and stops. And he said, you all were like that. And Paul could actually say, and I was like that. God fished me out of the same cesspool he did anybody. You see, the nations that are raging and rebelling, the people, God in his infinite grace reaches into those people. And from all nations and tongues and tribes, he brings people out. And folks, one day Jesus is going to return to reign over the nations, peoples, tribes, and tongues that have trusted him and bowed their knees to the king of kings and lord of lords. So the son speaks of his divine position. He is the son. It speaks of his divine purpose, and that is to rule and reign over the peoples and the nations. But he also speaks of his divine power. Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now remember, this is God the Son quoting God the Father who says to God the Son, listen son, I am giving you all power and you're going to rule. You have divine power. Jesus alluded to this very fact in John chapter 5. Verse 22, Jesus said this, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent Him. And at the very conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry here on this planet, He told His disciples, All power has been given to Me, both in heaven and on earth. And so the Son here speaks of His divine position, His divine purpose, and His divine power. Think about this. When you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are not following a loser. He must win. He cannot fail, right? Folks, let me tell you something. Satan is sailing a sinking ship. He rules a doomed domain. Jesus one day will be crowned the undisputed champion of the universe. He wins. But notice now the fourth voice, and we're going to call it the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God who inspired this psalm begins to speak now to the reader of the psalm. By the way, that's you and I today. So the Spirit is about to speak to us on what has just been said by the others, by the sinners, by God the Father, and by the Son. He begins to speak to your heart. And if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit right now is taking all of this and He's speaking to you. And He begins with a word of, of exhortation. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth, What's the Holy Spirit saying? He's basically saying this, folks. Wise up and learn from the reality of the coming wrath and judgment. Don't be foolish. Wise up. Jesus said this in John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But what? The wrath of God abides on him. That's why I said there are two camps. You're either abiding in the wrath or you're abiding in the Son. That's the only two camps from God's perspective. But then he offers an invitation. Look at verse 11 and 12. 
Here's the invitation for all of you who don't know Christ. Serve the Lord and fear Him. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but just a little. And then blessed are all of those who put their trust in Him. Those who've rebelled against Him, those who've been enraging and rebelling, those who've taken counsel against Him, the Holy Spirit says, hey, listen, rise up. You don't have to go down that way. You don't have to get put in the loser's column. Come, give Him a kiss. What, what that means in that, in that period of time in, in the world, to, to kiss a, a dignitary like a king was your way of saying, I submit to your leadership. It was, it was a, a graphic way of saying, I, I am, whatever you say, that's, I want to be a part of your leadership, king. And that's what he means here. Kiss the son. Give him a kiss of submission and devotion. There's a beautiful story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. It tells of a woman who entered into a man's uh, by the name of Simon, he entered into Simon's home. He was a Pharisee. He had invited Jesus over, wanted to probably trap Jesus. wasn't a fan of Jesus. But anyway, he has Jesus in his home, and in comes this woman, and she, she gets down, and, and in those days, they laid around a table. They, they kind of propped themselves up on a pillow on an elbow. They don't sit at chairs like we do. They just kind of laid down. And so she gets down by his feet, and she's crying, and she's weeping, and her tears begin to wash his feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair, and then she begins to kiss his feet, and it really, really bothered Simon. Because he even says into himself, not to Jesus, now this man knew what, what kind of woman this was, he would never let her touch him. And then it, then it says this, uh, it says then that Jesus, of course Jesus knew what he was thinking, and it says this in verse 44, then Jesus turned to the woman but he said to Simon, I like that. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since, I, since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. See, Simon, you think you, think you don't have very many sins. That's why you don't love. You don't, re you don't realize the cesspool you're living in. You don't realize how sinful you are. You see, he was very self-righteous. But folks, this woman comes in and begins to kiss his feet and wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. And what the Spirit is talking about in verse 12 of Psalm 2 is he's talking about loving Jesus. Kiss the Son of God. Put a kiss of faith upon the brow of His grace. Lavish your love upon the Son. Stop raging. Stop rebelling against God. He is gracious this morning and He's willing to forgive anyone who will come and bow their knee and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. 
But the way it ends is this, blessed are all those who trust in him. Folks, God is a God of wrath. And the person who insists on holding on to their sin and rebelling against the Lord Jesus will inevitably be judged with his or her sin and they will perish. That is the truth of Scripture. Now we've heard different voices in Psalm chapter 2. Sinners rage and rebel against the will of God in their lives. God sits in the heaven and says, these puny people, I'm going to carry out my plan. There's nothing they can do to stop it. And he'll speak to them in his wrath and in his distress. But all of the point is, is all of the combined efforts of man to remove God from everything will in no way hinder God from placing his son over everything. Jesus wins. Get on the winning side today. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, listen to this. Today, if you hear his voice, if you've seen what he says in the psalm, but today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Blessed are all of those who put their trust in him. There is your escape to the winning side. Amen? Here's what I want to ask of everyone here. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ without a shadow of a doubt, in the quietness of this room right now, I hope you just quietly pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, hell waits for them and we want them to be saved. You pray that right now. Christian, pray that right now. But if you're here this morning and you, you don't know Christ, you stumbled in here, you come every Sunday for whatever reason, we're so glad you're here. But there's no reason to walk out of those doors on the losing end of things when Christ says, come and trust me. Put your trust, your faith in me. So here's what I want to do. I want everyone right now to stand. Would you stand with me? We're going to dismiss with prayer. But the service isn't over. I'm going to allow those of you who, who need to leave to leave. But those of you who need to come up here and pray and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, as people are filing out that way and this way, you come this way. And we'll have some people up here waiting for you. By the way, I need some of you. If you know how to lead somebody to Christ, don't leave. What we don't want is 50 people to come forward to trust Christ and only two people be up here available. So if you're comfortable leading somebody to Christ, at least come up and wait, just in case. I have to believe that God has spoken to some hearts this morning. So in a moment when we dismiss, if you need Christ, and you know you need Christ, the invitation is to come forward and pray. We will not pressure you. We're not here to to make you uncomfortable. We're here to show you what God says about how you can join the winning team because Jesus wins. When it's all said and done, the rats don't win. Let's pray. Father, right now in this holy moment, there are perhaps some here that have never trusted Christ. And today is the day you've called them to, to salvation in Jesus. They need to quit rebelling they need to push their pride down. Quit trusting in themselves. Quit procrastinating. 
And they need to have boldness to come forward and get on their knees and do steps and pray to receive Christ. I know your people right now are praying all around this room for your Holy Spirit to speak to their hearts to trust in the Lord. And this is your moment, Father. This is your work. This is your time. And we ask you to move in Jesus' name. Amen. If any of you can stay and help, if, if others come, just come up and be available. That's great. If not, have a good and godly week. We'll see you next Sunday.